Over the past half century, there's been a decline in the rate of autopsies in much of the world. Although various approaches offering less invasive and more limited investigations into causes of death have been introduced, there's generally less reliance on examining cadavers altogether. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Kevin DeCock, the Kenya Country Director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Dr. DeCock has co-authored a perspective article about the benefits of post-mortem examination. Dr. DeCock, can you tell us a bit about the historical use of autopsies in medical education and practice? For how long have autopsies been an important part of medicine? Thank you. I think autopsies and the study of cadavers has been important in medical education and practice for very many hundreds of years. It's really over the last 50 years or so, really, I mean, over the course of my own career of 45, 46 years, that their use has declined. And there's a number of reasons, I think, why that has happened. The perspective that we authored not only talks about autopsies, but it talks about the need to learn as much as possible from people who have died in general, not only through use of autopsies, but through other approaches of more limited testing and sampling as well. So given that the rate of autopsy has declined uh, so much over the past 50 years, in what kinds of situations are autopsies still performed? I think that probably varies in uh, different countries of the world. I think in most countries, certainly those with more developed medical systems, autopsies can be required by what in the United States might be called the medical examiner, in the United Kingdom, the Her Majesty's coroner. They can be required in cases of um, unexplained death. And in practically all countries, they will be required in deaths where uh, crime has been committed. So looking at international research and public health purposes for autopsies, what place do they currently have in global health? I think they could have a far bigger place than they currently do, because I I guess the straight answer to the question is, sadly, they don't have the same place that they used to. And I think there are reasons for that that we could discuss. What does strike us, and my two co-authors and I, we all have rather different backgrounds, but what does strike us is that there's a great deal of decision-making based on mortality data, but those data can actually be very fragile. They're often based on very indirect assessments of causes of mortality, on mathematical modeling, on all sorts of things. And yet we can give specific examples where autopsy studies or more limited testing of cadavers for different diseases have given insights that actually have had very immediate relevance to public health or clinical practice. So do give an example or two. What sorts of things have shown the benefit? Sure. I'm thinking of two studies that we did when I was working in West Africa, which was in the late 1980s and early 90s, studying HIV-1 and HIV-2. My colleague, my co-author, Sebastian Lucas, who's really just an expert pathologist, one of the best infectious disease pathologists in the world, he and I and others conducted a very large autopsy series of consecutive patients in Abidjan's hospitals. Abidjan, the largest city in the West African country of Côte d'Ivoire, a very large autopsy series of patients dying with HIV and determining the cause of death, particularly the opportunistic infections and opportunistic processes that they died from. And there were several major, major conclusions from that study which were extremely important. Probably the first one, the, it, it really gave absolute insight into the overwhelming importance of tuberculosis in African HIV disease, but also highlighted the importance of other preventable and treatable infections 
And that actually had direct implications for public health programs, for policies about opportunistic infection prophylaxis, and so on and so forth. So that's one example. Another example, a study I was the lead investigator on a little bit earlier, was testing consecutive cadavers that presented at the city mortuaries for HIV and coming up with some estimates of the proportion of deaths due to HIV in this West African city, where at that time AIDS was not recognized to be a major problem. That paper was published in the journal Science, and the astounding conclusion was that actually AIDS was the leading cause of death in men, the second leading cause of death in women, and in a city where really AIDS had not been recognized as a major problem. It also gave insight, as did the autopsy study, into the, some of the differences in the relative epidemiology and pathology of HIV-1 and HIV-2. So those are just some examples. There are others one might be able to give. You mentioned the possibility of less invasive approaches to postmortem diagnosis as an alternative to full autopsies. What are the benefits and the potential limitations of those kinds of approaches? I think the different approaches need to be very carefully reviewed and selected depending on the pathology that one may be targeting. I think there's no question that the full autopsy will remain the gold standard. But I think post-mortem sampling, for example, for HIV, I'm now based in Nairobi in Kenya, and we've done work in this regard here, sampling cadavers in a representative way, for testing them for HIV, comparing that to the prevalence in the general population with appropriate analytic and statistical adjustments, one can actually calculate the excess deaths due to HIV or from the excess HIV prevalence. So you can actually calculate the attributable proportion of deaths due to HIV just by testing cadavers for HIV itself and comparing that to appropriate population standards. But for other conditions, it may be necessary to target specific organs. I mean, some examples, in the very large West African outbreak of Ebola, the post-mortem testing for Ebola by using oral swabs and testing those by PCR for Ebola, it was possible to identify occasional clusters of deaths in the community that had not been suspected but also by applying this more widely, having some sort of confidence that actually that there isn't a lot of unrecognized Ebola transmission going on. Because it's uh, in the context of an epidemic, and we're currently dealing with the important epidemic in the Democratic Republic of Congo, if there is a substantial transmission going on that is not recognized, people will die, and they'll die in the community. So that's another sort of uh, example of a simple approach. But there's other more complicated things that can be done I think some of them still need to be evaluated in terms of their reliability, in terms of their validity. But lung sampling for children dying with acute respiratory infection, for example, postmortem liver biopsies have been used in traditionally in yellow fever outbreaks. That is unexplored as far as I'm aware. That I mean, postmortem liver biopsy is unexplored, for example, in trying to determine the relative proportions and importance of diseases like hepatitis B hepatitis C, or parasitic diseases like hepatosplenic schistosomiasis. So there's a lot that can be explored and is being worked on. I don't think we know everything we need to know, but these are definitely approaches worth investigating more. Finally, you mentioned that the attitudes surrounding consent and family and religious sensitivities have most likely contributed to these reductions in rates of full autopsy. 
What kinds of steps do you think public health officials will have to take to change opinion about the importance of research, routine data collection involving people who've died? Yes, and before I answer that, I should make the comment that I think one reason why there is less emphasis on full autopsies and kind of neglect of less invasive approaches is probably our own medical hubris, for lack of a better term, in the sense that we have so much better diagnostic imaging these days. Our ability to investigate living patients clinically is so much better than it was in previous decades that there is sort of assumption that, well, we really don't need to be doing this anymore. It's kind of interesting analogy, I think, that there's been a less emphasis than there used to be on simple history taking and physical examination of living patients and a tendency to go straight for, oh, let's just do an ultrasound of the heart or a chest x-ray. So there's a sort of medical overconfidence, I think, just because of our increased diagnostic and therapeutic capacities. But actually, what's interesting is that if you do look at data from full autopsies, the rate of mistakes or the rate of misdiagnoses or wrong diagnoses really hasn't changed very much over time. There are sensitivities, of course. I think it's an issue of community engagement, community education. And I think there are analogies in other areas of medicine. Attitudes to testing for various diseases, including HIV, has changed substantially over time where we've been able to just push the envelope without infringing on people's rights to decline testing or no, absolutely no question of forcing things on people. But practice can change with education and with structural and legal interventions. Another area of where I think we face some of the same sorts of questions are the current debates about vaccine resistance and actually also the issue of organ donation, where in some countries or some societies, there's a move towards what's been described as informed right of refusal, the opt-out approach, saying, well, if somebody dies unexpectedly in a motor vehicle crash, we will harvest the cornea or whatever unless there's been explicit evidence that the person didn't want that, rather than doing it the other way and having always to have all of the positive consents in place. Obviously, these are important societal debates that had to be had. And I do hope that our perspective raises some important questions for consideration. Thank you, Dr. Dukok.